Well, I didn't say happy 4th of July, but I guess I should probably say that somewhere along the way. It is tomorrow. Celebrate our independence. Remember, as we think about that and celebrate our independence, that our true independence came from God the Father as he sent Jesus. And so as we talk about um, just even what we're going to talk about today, that's really what we're celebrating. We're celebrating our independence, our new identity, our new life uh, in Jesus. So we're going to jump back into our series on the seven churches of Revelation. Um, and just as a quick review, um, the seven churches that John addresses this book to are literal churches in, the, in Asia Minor. Um, or modern-day Turkey. Uh, and just like every other book in the Bible, the book of Revelation was written to um, a specific people or a specific church, and the Spirit of God really is the true author. Um, and so that makes it applicable for us today, and we can apply it to our hearts today. And I remind you that just like every other book in the Bible, because I think sometimes when we think about Revelation, we kind of separate it from the rest of them. Um, but the primary purpose of this book is just like every other book, to reveal Jesus to us reveal that he's the one that's worth worshiping. And so the point of studying this book, the point of looking at these seven churches, is so that we would see Jesus more clearly. That, that as we see him more clearly, it would affect the way that we interact within our own homes, with the way that we interact as a family, with the way that we interact in this city, um, that really declares so many other things and so many other people as ones that are worth worshiping. And so... As we think about that, that's really the key, that's the purpose, that Jesus would be seen as the one worth worshiping in every aspect of our life. And so I want to pick up reading in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We're going to look at the next church here, um, the church in Smyrna, who was going through uh, great persecution. I don't know if you picked that up on some of the songs today. We're kind of talking about suffering, and so that's what we're going to kind of uh, look at. This church is really undergoing some great persecution. A little bit about uh, this city. Um, it's a seaport city. It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus, the, the, the city that we looked at two weeks ago. And apparently, um, I've never been there, but this city is a city that has, uh, that has great beauty and was really known for science and medicine during its time. Um, and I'm not, we're not really sure exactly how this church was formed there. It's not, this, this church is not mentioned in the book of Acts, but we talked about this when we looked at the book of Ephesians, that if, um, and well, I mean the book of Revelation that we looked at church in Ephesus, um, that um, that church was a, was a sending church and kind of a hub for the region. Um, and so it probably was started out of the work in the church of Ephesus. Um, and I, I think there's some interesting things here uh, in this that are, are really a lot of imagery um, that we probably don't pick up right away. Um, this word, the name for the city, um, Smyrna, is actually the same Hebrew word for myrrh. Um, myrrh, if you remember, is a perfume. It was given to Jesus by the wise men at his birth. Um, it was really a sign of him coming uh, to die. Um, there was a perfume that was given for live people and for dead people. It's also the same perfume mirrors what we see Joseph of Arimathea uh, use on Jesus after Jesus' body um, was taken down off the cross and he was dead and after he suffered and died. And so that was poured over him um, at that time. As I think about that, I did a little more research on myrrh. I've never really researched myrrh before. I don't know. I really didn't have any reason to, I guess. Um, but myrrh, how myrrh is made is actually through, um, it's, a, it's kind of a thorny tree with lots of branches on it. And these branches have, have big, long thorns on them. And, and how you get 
uh, myrrh, how you get that perfume is by really squeezing the essential oils out of that tree. And, and all throughout history, um, it's been used as, as a perfume or as incense, or in many cases, it's been used as medicine as well, um, which is probably why this city was named after it, because um, it was a city of medicine. But as I think about that and just kind of this thorny tree um, and all that, I think there's a lot of imagery in, in just the name of this of this of this city and how and as you think about how Jesus um, was crushed by persecution and how um, that produced a beautiful blessing from God and and that same thing of of thorns and all kinds of, there's all kinds of stuff there but we're not going to have time to talk about all that so anyway I just kind of throw that out there so we're going to start reading in verse eight um, this uh, God says this to the angel of the church is murder right the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue, but are of the synagogue of Satan. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about um, in the church of Ephesus that worshiping the Roman emperor um, as God was a law. And so in this, this area of town of, of the world, it was a law. And if, if you didn't worship the emperor, you could be put to death. Except if you were a Jew. That was the only exception on that law. And we see here that this church um, is really experiencing this in this city. Um, if you, um, this is a city that's had a long, uh, strong loyalty to Rome. Um, and all the different battles, regardless of who was in charge, they always seem to be the one that, that is, as a city, came back to like fall under the headship of Rome. And so... They always kind of follow in, in that, that line. And so if you look back to back in some historical documents, you'll see that the leader of this church in Smyrna was actually burned alive for worshiping Jesus um, instead of worshiping Caesar. And so this church was undergoing great pressure, experiencing suffering um, from, from, that, from that experience. But also we see here that they're, they're, they're experiencing it from... From, from the Jewish uh, population as well. And my guess is that many of the, of the followers in this, this church probably were Jews as well. And so they were experiencing it from, from their own countrymen where now they're kicked out of the synagogue and they're no longer allowed to worship at all. They have nowhere to, to worship. And so it was a hard place to live. It was a hard place to follow Jesus. And they're, they're experiencing some great suffering and John reminds them here, he says, he reminds them of the hope that they have in Jesus, that they're rich. That they're rich, even though it doesn't appear that way to others. Even though it doesn't look like that. And then he goes on in verse 10, he says this to them, he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have a tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Makes me think about that crown that Jesus wore at his death with the thorns and the, the name of the city. There's all kinds of stuff here. Um, but verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So, so John writes to this church who's, who's undergoing a, a lot of great intense suffering. And in the book of Revelation, um, he reminds them and gives them hope that Jesus is going to return. That Jesus is going to bring final restoration to his people and to the earth. And, and all that's going to come into completion. And as I think about that, as we think about that's kind of the context of what's going on here. I want to talk about today 
How do we live in the midst of suffering and hold on to the hope of the gospel, the hope of redemption, both um, for our daily lives every day and for the future? Because um, the truth is that, that even when it may seem like we're not suffering, we're actually still suffering. We're, we're continually suffering um, from the effects of sin in our lives. And so whether you have a bunch of things going on in your life right now or you don't think you have much going on in your life, you're, either way, you're still suffering from the effects of sin in life. And we're, we're all in need of this ongoing transformation of our lives. We're all, we all are, are people who have areas of our life that are in need of redeeming. We're people who are, who are desperately in need of Jesus. We, we need him to continue to change us and, and to mold us and to fill us and to produce uh, his life in and through us. We're all in need of ongoing the work of redemption in your life. If, if, you've, if you've trusted in, the, in, in Jesus and his work on the cross, then, then ultimately your redemption is already secure. Um, but we're still, in the, we're still in need of daily transformation, that, that, and that, that comes in the midst of suffering. The problem is that, that often um, we take and we have our own idea of what redemption should be. And, and we hold God kind of accountable to that, to really to our preferred reality out of this situation. We come to him and say, this is what I want. And, and, when, and when, I, when I get that, when that happens, um, then I'll find my hope in you. Then, then I'll take rest. Then I'll really trust you. It's then that I'll worship you. And unfortunately, and I would say also fortunately, that's not how God works. He's not controlled by our desires or our or, or, our, our wants, he, that's, that's not what he desires. What, what he desires is that we would worship him no matter what is going on in our lives. He, he, wants, he wants us to worship him even when our expectations are really dashed on the ground and smashed. He wants us to worship him um, even when what we hope in terms of redemption would happen in our life that we would be rescued from something, we'd be rescued from our sufferings or from the problems or from trials. Um, he wants us to worship even when that doesn't, that doesn't look like the way that we wanted to. You see, he doesn't want our affections for him to be dependent on our circumstances. Our, our circumstances should never inform our view of God. It should always be the other way around. Our, our view of God should inform our circumstances. Um, last week we talked about um, that God is a God who sets up kings and kingdoms, that he's, that he's sovereign over all things, that he's, that he's working all things to, to, um, out into fruition so that he would be seen as the true king. And as we think about that, that should inform the way that we look at the circumstances around us. It should inform the way that we look at the news about what is going on in Europe right now. It should, look, it should inform the way we think about the elections in our country this year. It should inform the way we think about the bombings in Turkey this past week. And even, even the, the killings this morning that took place. Our circumstances should never inform our view of God. Our view of God should always inform our circumstances. This is, and I, I think this is especially key when we're experiencing suffering in our life. I think oftentimes when we get experiencing suffering, that understanding of God informing things gets thrown out. We usually flip it the other way around. 
But this isn't anything new. This isn't something that we've just invented. If you look back at the story of Israel and the Israelites in Egypt, we see them, we see them enslaved and, and suffering bitterly in Egypt and, and bitter oppression and cruelty. And so they cry out for help, which is usually the first response when that happens. Um, and I would say is the right response. And in Exodus 2, we see that, that God hears them. God remembers them. God saw what was going on. God knew what their suffering was. He wasn't unaware, he wasn't uninvolved in what was going on. Now, I want to remind us and I remind you that, that God sees you and God knows the suffering that you're experiencing this morning. God knows you, he sees you, he cares what's going on in your life. What we see here in this church of Smyrna is that, is that God knows what's going on. In fact, he tells them that they're going to experience some more suffering. That they're going to experience some more pain. He tells them they're going to be put in prison. He says they're going to be brought to the edge of death. I don't know what that exactly means, edge of death, but it's not good. It's not, not where we want to hang out. And, and <laughs> you don't want to be like, oh. and I, I kind of imagine this church as, as they get this book, as they get this letter that John gave them, this book of Revelation, and they start reading in chapter 1, and, and they're... They're talking about and thinking about Jesus is going to return and he's going to bring redemption. And, and they're like, yes, we're done with this suffering that's going on around us. God has finally heard our prayers. He's going to send Jesus back to deliver us. He's going to set us all free. This is going to be awesome. They're probably thinking the headache is all over. We're going to be out of here soon. Maybe at least sometime this year. It's going to happen. It's going to be amazing. I'm sure that they all had created this, this picture in their mind. They're setting up expectations of what it was going to look like when Jesus returns. What, 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 I, what I would be doing. And I'm guessing it's, it's what I would do. It's probably what you would do. We would think about the same kind of thing in the midst of our suffering. We're like, get us out of here. But then when we get to chapter 2, and we have this letter that's written specifically to them, things don't sound so great as maybe they would have thought. They, 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 more prison, more near-death experiences, more pain and suffering. God apparently had a different plan for them than what their preferred picture of reality was. The, the reality that God's picture of redemption is not always the one that we imagine in our lives. It's not always the one where we just get out of those situations. And this call to this church here um, in Spurta is that they're going to suffer. And I want to say that that call is not just for them. It's, it's for all of us. I want to say God's picture of redemption will always include pain and trial and suffering in the midst of it. And how do I know that? It's because it's what Jesus experienced. And it's what he's promised in Scripture and many other places that that's what his followers are going to experience. That that's what's going to include it. But the good news of that is that God knows. God's present. He cares. And he desires for you to grow in his reflection of his image. Which is grace. That he would make us more like Jesus in the midst of things. You turn over to Hebrews 5. There's a lot of stuff in Hebrews about suffering. But in Hebrews 5, um, the author, verse 7 to 8, the author refers to, to Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and we see that 
this most likely is not the only time that Jesus prayed this same prayer and that Jesus cries out to God with, with loud cries and tears. But he says this in Hebrews 5, verse 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That is an amazing statement. There is a lot of stuff in there. That although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Two things as we think about this verse. First of this is, is Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. Right? Jesus learned through trials. He, he learned through suffering, and he always responded in faith. Remember that Jesus was tempted in every way. That, that, that Jesus experienced all types of trials. Jesus experienced all types of suffering. And the temptation that Jesus experienced didn't negate his sonship. The, the, the suffering that Jesus uh, went through didn't negate his sonship, but rather affirmed his sonship. Later on, the author in Hebrews will say to, listen, the trials that you're experiencing, guess what that is? It's loving care, it's discipline from your father because he loves you, because he cares for you, because he's your dad. This is the same as true of Jesus. He suffered and he was tempted and he endured trials and he learns obedience. The second thing as we think about this is that Jesus was heard. Now, this can be a little bit confusing, I think, as we think about this with our human mindset. I think oftentimes when we think, if you've heard me, you will change. I think that's often what I think. Right? If, if you hear my point of view, you will definitely change your mind. I don't know how many times I've heard that in my house um, with other people, and I've said myself. If you've heard me, you will do something different. You will think something different. But this verse is saying, Jesus cried out um, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. So God... So did God answer Jesus' prayer in the garden to remove the suffering? Well, yes and no. If, if, if by the answer, I mean, did Jesus get an answer? Well, Jesus got an answer, but it wasn't the answer that he was looking for, apparently. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was heard when he cried out to God. And so what he's saying, he's telling us is, is that God hears your prayer. And that doesn't mean that God is going to give you everything that you desire and everything that you're praying for. Jesus, Jesus remembered that he cried out, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours. So, so, so apparently, the Father's preferred picture of redemption was different than what Jesus' picture of redemption was at that moment. And God heard him and answered, but the answer was different than what Jesus desired at that moment. And Jesus says, if there's, if there's another way to get this done, God, that would be super Here's what, here's what I want. Here's what I want redemption to look like. But the Father says no. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't sin. He submits and he still worships. That's the thing. That's the main point that we're looking at here. That, that's what Jesus is saying to this church in Smyrna. And he's saying to us is, worship me in the midst of the suffering. And you will receive Victory and redemption in the second death. The second death is a spiritual, eternal death. Basically, learn to live life of redemption now as you endure the pain of this life. And the fruit of that, the fruit of that both right now 
is going to be a picture of redemption, and the fruit of that in the future is your future redemption that God has already secured. Because here's the deal. If, if Jesus, the Son of God, had to learn obedience through suffering, how much more do you and I? How much more should we learn obedience through suffering if God, if Jesus had to do it that way? Yet I sense that we often walk around with this expectation that we won't have to endure suffering. We, don't, we, don't have to, we won't have to endure hardship. We don't want that to be part of our redemption story. Whether, whether it's in the midst of suffering or just in the everyday of things that, that we hold on to, that we submit, that we don't want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. But the truth is that pain will simply come because it's the nature of redemption. Redemption means to purchase something out of slavery. If you're part of the family of God, you've ultimately been purchased, you've ultimately been redeemed, but we still live in this world and in this life of sin, waiting for the consummation of that redemption. We've been, we've been enslaved for a long, long time to sin. And here's the crazy thing. In some distorted way, our slavery and our sin is so familiar to us that it's actually comforting. We actually feel like this is the place I'm supposed to live. It's comforting to us. And we've, we've swallowed the hook and the false comfort of sin. And as God pulls that, that hook out of our mouth, it's painful. And as God breaks the chain of slavery, there's often a loss in our life. Faithful obedience after a long period of slavery is difficult and it's painful. The question becomes is, how do we respond to that pain? See, how we respond in the midst of suffering, in the midst of of adversity, will reveal our deepest beliefs about who we think God is. How we respond will reveal what we're expecting from God. What we believe to be most true about Him. How, how you and I respond will tell everyone around us what your view of God is in light of your circumstances and, and, and your circumstances in light of God, who God is. You know, as you think about this in the Bible, Job is, is, a, is a well-known uh, example of someone who who deeply suffered and, and held great convictions. And, and, and as we think about that, uh, through the, the midst of that, God was, was both revealed and affirmed in him through his trials. The trials merely show what is already going on in the heart. They're, they're an awesome opportunity for growth. They're, they both reveal and they're opportunity for growth where, where your heart would be transformed back into the truth. Of, of, of what's true about you. If you take a look at Job, um, in Job 1, verse 20, um, and, and on from there, this is right after, this book kind of starts that way, and, and right from the very beginning of the book, Job just kind of loses everything. He, he's a very wealthy man. He has a very, um, um, has all kinds of things, animals, family. It seems like everything is going well for him. And he loses his donkeys, he loses his sheep, he loses his camels, he loses all of his servants, he loses all of his kids, um, everything dies and is taken away from him. And everything that he really held dear to. And at, at this point in Job 1, verse 20, all he has left is his wife and his health. And in verse 20, it says this, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. 
and he fell to the ground and worshipped. That is not what you expect to see. That is super unexpected worship. That's not what you expect at the end of that list. Job arose, and he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. He says this, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, that was what was in Job's heart. And the trial that he experienced squeezed that out of him. It's so often as I think about my own life and as I think about the lives of many people that I know, we respond negatively to adversity. And that, that when we often happens is we take it a step further and we blame the circumstances for causing us to respond that way. It's this thing around me that made me do that. I got mad because that guy cut me off. I eat because I'm lonely. I I look at porn because I'm lonely. I, I do X because of Y. My sin is because of my circumstances. But the reality is that the pressure and the trials of life, really, the circumstances squeeze you. It reveals what's already going on in your heart. It reveals what, what's true inside of you, what's, what, what you truly believe. It's kind of like a tube of toothpaste. When you squeeze it, what's inside of that tube is going to come out. And, and, and what is in our heart, and often what is in our heart is our worship is pointed in the wrong direction. Fundamentally, we're saying, it is all about me. It's all about me. And so when life throws you um, suffering and, and, and a curveball or whatever, you're really confronted with that reality that it's not about you, how do we respond? We, say, we respond, it is still about me. We just shout it louder. Psalm 5 says this, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. As you think about this idea of refuge and blessing from God, the deal is, as you think about a refuge, a refuge is only good for someone who needs it. A refuge shelter is only good if it's raining outside. Or if there's some attack in a battle, a refuge is only good when something is going on. And so what these verses are saying is that blessing from God means that he's going to be with you when the rains start pouring into your life. So I think about that this week. Possibly no other place or or a few other places in the world, we we don't expect rain. Right? This is the, the land where it never rains. Even physical rain, we don't expect it to happen. Every day, like what my kids get, what, what's the temperature going to be today? What's going to happen out there today? It's going to be sunny in 75 to 80. Like, where that? Every day, like, it, it, we don't expect it to actually to rain. And when, even if it's cloudy or overcast, we're like, oh, this is a terrible day. When the rest of the country is like all closed up inside, like with the snow in December, We're having a cookout. We don't expect it to rain. It's supposed to be sunny all the time. But we, and I think we fall into that when we think about God. That if God is blessing us, 
nothing will ever happen to you or to me. Nothing bad will happen. We'll never have to experience suffering. But that's not the case. Blessing from God means that his presence will be with you when trials come. That's the very definition of blessing from God. That's what he gives us. That's a very different definition from blessing that that we think of when we think of blessing. Because I think oftentimes we think it means no trials. But Psalms 5 says, no, 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 no. Trials are given, so we need a different definition of blessing. The blessing is the refuge. Blessing is not the absence of trial. It's the presence of God in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering. Which is really good news, that when the trials of life are happening for you, you are able to go and hide yourself in God. To go and say, I am glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're with me, that you're going to walk through this with me. It's, it's raining outside really, really bad, and I'm glad that you're with me here. Blessing is not the absence of trial. Blessings is the presence of God in the midst of trial. And it's why it's so critical for us to understand what right worship sounds like in the moment of temptation or the moment of suffering. You see, when we're tempted or when we're in the midst of suffering, in the midst of of tough times in life, we can't just grit our teeth and chant some mantras about who God is. God is present. God is in control. Yay, let's go. Like, we can't just actually, like, just say those things. We need to go vertical with our worship and talk to God about himself. To say to God, I'm tempted to think right now that you're not great, that you're not in control, that you don't really love me. And this is so important because the difference between finding um, God as our refuge and just knowing that God is our refuge and really standing outside in the rain and saying, well, there's my refuge over there. I could go in there and get out of this rain, but um, I don't really care to. Um, I know that it's there. The difference between that and 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 going and, and being actually inside the shelter, inside the refuge, is actually God affirming, God reminding you the truth of who he is. You have to go and get in the shelter. Say, God, you are my refuge, you are my shelter. When it's pouring in my life, I still am affirming that you are the one that's in control. I'm still affirming that, that you are the one that I love, that you are the one that I want to worship. This is exactly what Jesus models for us perfectly. In Psalm 22, this is what Jesus quotes on the cross. And, and many scholars will say that, that, that Jesus actually quoted the whole psalm, but we just get a little, little blips of it in, in the Gospels. In Psalm 22, he says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night I do not find rest. And here's the kicker in verse 3. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. So in just a few hours before, Jesus says, Father, um, let's not do it this way. Let's, let's do something else, but I'm going to submit to you. And now he's on the cross, and he's completely separated from God. If you look at the gospel accounts, this is, this is when God is completely separated himself. And even then, Jesus doesn't sin. Jesus is hung out to dry completely alone and completely abandoned. The presence of God that you and I now enjoy and experience, that very blessing from Psalm 5, where it talks about the refuge, is gone from Jesus now. No refuge at all for Jesus. 
And, and what does he do? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't shake his fist at God. He doesn't curse God. He doesn't worship something else. He says, why have you forsaken me? Yet you are still holy. I still affirm that you are God. Even though you've abandoned me, I still know that you are God. That is amazing. That is, that is really good news as well. The good news is that Jesus gave up his presence, gave up the presence of God so that you and I could always have God's presence with us. That Jesus worshipped in the midst of trial, that he worshipped in the midst of suffering so that we could always have God with us in the midst of ours. That Jesus continued to trust in the one who abandoned him. And, that he, that, and the good news is that now, because of that, God will never leave us or forsake us, even in our darkest hour, even in the darkest, hardest trial of life. And that's really the message to the church here in Smyrna, right? And it's the message to us, that you're going to suffer. John tells him, and God tells him, you're going to suffer. You're going to go through some more trials. There's going to be some prison. There's going to be some near-death, edge-of-death stuff. But take hope. Jesus is with you. God is with you. God is using the suffering. God is using the trials to mold your life and the life of others around you to make a beautiful picture of God's redemption. God is producing the fragrant smell of myrrh in your life. God is aligning your life with his. God is aligning your life with the death and the life of Jesus now as the trials squeeze out the beautiful picture of redemption. So I'm not sure exactly what you're going through this morning or what is going on in exactly every one of your lives, but God is with you. His presence is with you. He's the shelter in the midst of the storm of your life that's going on. God cares for you. God loves you. And God desires that you would worship him in the midst of it. That you would go vertical and say, God, this isn't really what I planned. This isn't what I thought my life would look like at this point. This isn't the way I thought my job would be or lack of job would be. This isn't exactly the way I thought my family life would look. This isn't exactly the way I thought my marriage would be. This isn't, the, this isn't exactly where I hoped I'd live. But yet, God, you are in control, and I know that you are for me and that you are with me and this, that you are the refuge in the midst of all that's going on. And I affirm that. I believe that to be true. Please remind me of that. Call me back to the truth of that. And, and give me the life of Jesus as you squeeze out the myrrh, the beautiful picture of redemption, the smell of redemption in my life. Our Father, thank you that um, because of Jesus, we no longer have to suffer alone. We no longer have to experience separation from you. That we, that we know that you never leave us or forsake us. That you are our refuge in the midst of hard times that you call us into. But I pray as a family that you would remind us of that, that you would use each other to call us back to worshiping you in the midst of what's going on in our lives. But I pray that we would be a church that is not excluded from suffering. But we know that, that suffering and trials 
brings out a beautiful picture of redemption. And Lord, we want that. We want to look more like you. We want, we desire to be the picture of Jesus in the city. And so Lord, we, we ask that you would, you would allow us to, to understand those things and to be called into them. Lord, I pray that for my own heart and for the hearts of each person here. Lord, I pray as we go to communion that you would remind us that you experienced the ultimate suffering. Not just the physical pain and struggle of going to the cross and the death of that, the brutal beating of that, but that you ultimately experienced the separation from the Father, which you've never experienced in eternity past or eternity future. You were separated so that we could be put together. But Father, I pray that you would remind us of that and that we would celebrate the truth of that. Lord, that as we go to the table, that you would remind us of your goodness and of your grace um, and that now we get to celebrate those things because of what you've done, that you've made us sons and daughters of the King, that you've restored the broken relationships that, that we propagated. But I pray that we would be a people that, that truly understand and demonstrate uh, that you are uh, our refuge. Lord, we thank you that we get to celebrate that this morning and that as we have a meal afterwards as well, that we it's continually talk about your goodness and your grace in all aspects of life. Lord, we pray all these things in your great name.